Today, we're continuing on in our study of John chapter 1, and we're answering the question, what does it mean that the Word was made flesh? Hey everyone, welcome back to The Pursuit with James Griffin. My name is Mike Anthony. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Cross Point City Church. And as usual, I'm here with our lead pastor, James Griffin. Now, James, we are continuing on and kind of wrapping up this first section, John's prologue in right. chapter one, right? So we've kind of been, I've heard some jokes okay. about how slowly we're moving through. I say jokes, it may have been criticisms <laughs> about how slowly we're moving through kind of this first section. Yeah. Um, but we're at the end of it. We're in okay. the last few verses. And I think kind of when we wrap all this up, I think it's going to really become clear. It's like, hey, so... Yeah to tackle all of this right. in like one sermon or even two sermons, just to do it justice, it just isn't possible. That's what I would say to all the critics. You try to preach it all in one, right? <laughs> you try to cover all 18 <laughs> verses in one sermon. It's impossible. Like we could have done it, but we would have missed so much depth, yes. so much richness that we see in the text. And, yeah. and I just didn't want to do that. I would rather move slowly and really do the text justice than, than feel this need to fly through it all. Yeah. So, yeah. And, I, and I think that people are seeing that. I think maybe they're just giving us a hard time. <laughs> uh, so let's jump in because we've got, you know, we've, as usual, we got a lot to talk That's about. That's right. Um, so let's jump in. There was no bonus material I, this time. You were able to squeeze it all in. This, yeah. I'm, I'm figuring out how to, how to write less. <laughs> yeah. In the, in the last few weeks, I've included more than I needed to. And so this yeah. week, I, I finally got it right. Okay. Well, we still have plenty to talk about. Yep. So have no fear. So let's jump in. Let's get the cliff notes. Let's bring everybody kind of back onto the same page right. and we'll jump into some questions we got. Okay. Well, y'all just start with the text. As always, uh, we covered John 1, 14 through 18. And John writes there that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Mm. So what we find in the text is this doctrine known as the incarnation. Mm -hmm. And I said it over the weekend, but it is an essential doctrine. Yeah. You cannot deny the incarnation and be a Christian. Right. Right. To follow Christ, you have to believe in this, right? Yeah. Uh, John says in Second John two seven, or in Second John seven, not two seven. There's only one chapter in Second John. Second <laughs> John seven, that to deny the incarnation means that you're a deceiver and an antichrist. Yeah. So it, it really is that important. But to incarnate means to put on meat mm -hmm. or to put on flesh which is what Christ did at his incarnation. Right. Uh, Christ, who is fully God, became fully man. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% of both. And as I said in the sermon as well, he didn't cease to be God when he became a man. Yeah. There are people who will argue that, and I would say it's a lame argument. Um, Jesus Christ willingly laid aside certain divine rights and privileges, but he did not cease to be God. Mm -hmm. And as John tells us, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt there means that he tabernacled. Yeah. 
uh, set up a tent, came here to be the visible manifestation of God's glory in the earth, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And so Jesus is the Son of God in a very unique way, mm-hmm. which means he possesses a glory that nothing and no one else possesses, and and the disciples saw it. Like, blows me away, bro. Like, can you imagine being one of the 12 and, <laughs> and seeing the very glory of God in Jesus Christ? No, I can't. It's fascinating, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, we talked about how Jesus Christ is full of both grace and truth and how we're not usually full of both grace and truth. Right. <laughs> As people, we typically lean toward one of these qualities over the other. Mm-hmm. We tend to be grace people or truth people. Right. And, and Jesus didn't lean. He operated in both grace and truth all the time. And if we want to be like him, that is the goal. Right, we show grace to sinners. Mm-hmm. We lead with grace. Grace becomes the platform from which we share the truth. But we always have to share the truth. Yeah, we can't avoid the truth because the truth is what ultimately sets people free. So if we really love someone, mm-hmm. we're always going to get around to telling the truth. And again, this is what Jesus did. And then we talked about the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. How God giving the law through Moses was an act of grace. Mm-hmm. Right, He outlined His way of life for His people so that. They would know how to live in a way that that ensured his blessing, his favor, peace, prosperity. But the greater grace came through Jesus. Yeah. The law came through Moses. It was an act of grace. But God gave grace in place of that old grace. And again, the grace that came through Christ was greater because, as I pointed out, the law can't save. Right. Like if you and I were innocent people, which we're not. Uh, all born into the world as sinners, and all the parents said, amen, right? Like, we know the truth. <laughs> Those little people come out of the womb as experts and have yes. sin. But if we if we were innocent and could obey the law of God perfectly, we could save ourselves. Mm-hmm. The problem is none of us have done that. And so what we need is the grace of God, and he gave it to us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. He came here in the flesh to dwell among us, full of grace and truth, the visible glory of God, upon the earth, and he did it to live the life we couldn't live, Mm -hmm. to die the death we deserve, to make us blameless in the sight of God, and to conquer our enemy, the devil, and he was successful in it all. And that is really, really good news. And then finally, we talked about his purpose. He came to make the Father known. And that phrase there, made known, it, it means to exegete, to explain, to describe. And so he literally came in the flesh to exegete the Father, Mm -hmm. to make sense of who God is, and we ended by talking about how our purpose in the world is the same now. Yeah, uh, We are here to exegete the Father, to make him known. And we do that by living incarnational lives, by putting the very glory of God on display through how we live each day. Mm-hmm. We're here to, to share truth, to show grace. Uh, we're here to make sense of who God is for yeah. a world that desperately needs to know him. And the way we do that, 1 John 4, 9 through 12, is we love. Mm-hmm each other. Like we're not even talking about people out in the world, Mike. We're talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. Uh, as followers of Jesus, we are to love each other in the same way that we have been loved. And John says that when we do that, ultimately we put this God on display that no one has ever seen. And so it's, it's our love that makes the Father known. Yeah. So that's the short version of the sermon. If you missed it, go back and watch it. We, we went deep in, yeah. in some of that. So a lot in between. A lot in between. Yes. So again, if you missed it, go check it out. All right. Well, let's jump into 
Well, let's jump into the first question. Okay. Um, we, we actually had some questions come in so this week. So we did More have questions. We had multiple questions Love come that. in this week, which was great because it made my job a lot easier. <laughs> uh, but they were some really they were some really good and I think important yeah. questions. Um, so the first one, kind of going back to um, the word made flesh, so yep. the incarnation of Christ. Did Jesus make a permanent sacrifice in taking on flesh to save us? And then the follow-up is what was he like before? Yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, simple answer, no. <laughs> no, he did not make a permanent sacrifice in taking on flesh to save us. And, mm-hmm. and I'll address quickly, what was he like before? Um, he was immaterial. Yeah. B- before he took on flesh, he was like God the Father, like God the Holy Spirit, in that he was spirit. Mm-hmm. And so when he took on flesh, he became like us, material being. Yeah. But before becoming a material being, he was simply immaterial. There was only one aspect of his nature, his divine nature. Mm-hmm. And then he added human nature to that. Yeah. But, but no, he didn't make a permanent sacrifice in taking on flesh to save us. Um, what we see before the incarnation, this is interesting. I thought I'd speak to this for just a moment. You do see in the Old Testament what is commonly known as Christophanies, mm-hmm. where Jesus, even though he was an immaterial being, he would make these appearances yeah. in, in human form. Uh, we see some in Genesis. We see one in Isaiah 6. Like They're, they're scattered throughout. Yeah. Uh, those were not incarnations. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not necessarily Jesus taking on human form and staying in human form. These were just appearances for specific purposes, but at his incarnation, as I said a moment ago, the immaterial became material and these two natures came together in one person. This is actually known as the hypostatic union in theology, where the divine nature and the human nature came together in Christ, the God man, pretty fascinating. Uh, But I made the point over the weekend that, that when he took on flesh, he did lay aside willingly Mm -hmm. certain divine rights and privileges not meaning that he emptied himself completely of them, yeah. but in certain ways he, he didn't use what belonged to him rightfully. So, mm-hmm. you know, I pointed out his omniscience, Luke 2.52, how Jesus Christ grew in wisdom. And I'm blown away by that every time I think about it, that the God who knows all things had to learn things. Um, it struck me just this past week, and, and I didn't even talk about it Thursday, but between Thursday and Sunday, it struck me that, Jesus Christ, the the God-man, who isn't dependent upon anything or anyone for his existence, Mm -hmm. humbled himself and became dependent upon human people, sinners, Mary and Joseph, his parents, people he made. He became dependent upon them for his very existence. That's crazy to think about. And so in certain ways, he, he laid aside his omniscience, his ability to know all things and and he became like us. Uh, the same was true for his omnipresence. We believe in a God that is everywhere at all times. When Christ was upon the earth, he was in a human body, which meant he could only be in one place at one time. Mm-hmm. And I would even say the same to be true of his omnipotence. I don't think he gave up his his power entirely because, again, we see him doing things in the scriptures like raising people from the dead and calming storms, and you don't do that stuff unless you're God. <laughs> and so he still had it. You know what yeah. I'm saying, Mike? Yeah. Um, he could exercise it if he wanted to, mm-hmm. but in certain situations, he chose not to. Instead, he he did what we, what we do on a daily basis, yeah. walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when I say no, he didn't make a permanent sacrifice. Um, 
Jesus Christ is, is fully functioning in all of those ways today. And so after his resurrection, he ascended to heaven. He's in his glorified body on the throne of heaven. He knows all things. Mm-hmm. His knowledge is not limited in any way. Um, Jesus Christ is present in all places at all times today with his people through the person of the Holy Spirit. And I would even say he can do anything and his resurrection proves it. Yeah. Like if the brother can raise from the dead, he can do anything. <laughs> and we're gonna see that again one day in the future at his second return when yeah. Jesus Christ will come and crush his enemies and take back his world and rid the world of all that we hate and redeem and restore all things. And so his, his sacrifice was not permanent. What was permanent is his personhood. Yeah. And so it's crazy that right now as we're here, Jesus Christ is on the throne of heaven, fully God and fully man forever. He will always exist in that in that state throughout right. eternity. Yeah. I think this is probably one of the I would say the one of the more difficult concepts because yeah. our brain wants to make sense of that. Right. How can like okay, he's fully God and he's fully man. And we want to mathematically or right. systematically kind of like, okay, well, logically, this is how that makes sense. And it yeah. just doesn't because right. he's God. Right. Right? It shouldn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense. If we could make sense of it, he wouldn't be God. Yeah. Right? That's good. Yeah. All right. So let's jump on to the next one, um, which I think I think also we're kind of like focusing in on this incarnation. Yeah. Right? And, yep. and you know, this is really kind of the crux of the passage yep. that we're talking about. Um, but in kind of a roundabout way. So here's, here's what the question was. How can I give it to God? They said, I've always struggled with what that means. So l- let's kind of unpack. Yeah. Let's unpack what that means because that, that is a very important question. Mm-hmm. And I would say something that everybody struggles with. Yeah. How do we give it Yeah, whatever to it God? is, yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Well, you and I were talking in the office about an implication of the incarnation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't talk about this on Sunday, but I I really do think it helps to answer that question. And so I'll just go there. Uh, Hebrews 4, Mm -hmm. 14 through 16. I'll read this and then I want to spend just a few minutes unpacking it. But the writer of Hebrews says, since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So important. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus our sympathetic high priest. Mm -hmm. And the word there, sympathize, it's so significant because it means to share the experience of another to share the experience of another. This is what Christ did through his incarnation. Mm -hmm. He put on flesh and he came and he dwelt among us to share in our experience. And because he shared in our experience, he can now identify with us as his people. Uh, Again, going back to this for a moment, isn't it crazy to think that our God, our King, was born as a babe in a manger, right? had to be kept alive by mom and dad, had his diaper changed, you know, (laughs) um, nursing at his mother's breast. Yeah. Right? This Mm -hmm. was him. Grew into a toddler, had to learn how to walk, had to learn how to talk, how to pass objects, how to feed himself. 
uh, grew into a young child, went to school, mm-hmm. had to learn concepts and it's crazy, actually learned the scriptures that were all about him. Yeah. Crazy. Grew into a teenager and, uh, and a perfect one at that. That's hard to believe, isn't it? A perfect teenager. This was Jesus. And then, perfect toddler is yeah, just as hard to believe. And it is, isn't it? <laughs> and then a young adult and, and a man. But, but he shared in that. Like he knows what it is to live the life that we live, mm-hmm. which sets Christianity apart from every other belief system in the world. Our God became a man. And yeah. because he did that, he can sympathize with our weaknesses, you know, last week we talked in great detail about Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. which tells us that Jesus was despised, rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And we see that in such clear ways throughout the gospels. I mean, if you think about what Jesus went through, his family thought he was crazy, wrote him off, right? Like, I mean, most of them didn't even believe that he was who he claimed to be till after the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, his friends betrayed him. One of his own disciples sold him out to be crucified to the very men who wanted him dead. Uh, he lost loved ones to death unexpectedly, like his best friend Lazarus died. We're going to talk about that later in John's gospel. But Jesus went through pain, man. Mm-hmm. He experienced the hardest parts of life, and and so he understands our suffering. Mm-hmm. Like when we go to him and, and we're in a hard spot, it's not like he's, ah, oh, good luck, so sorry, hope it gets better, no idea what that's like. <laughs> you know, instead, yeah. he's the God who looks at us and goes, man, I know exactly what that's like because I've walked in your shoes, I've worn your skin, got the T-shirt, been there, done that. This is who he is. And I would say for us today, like what he experienced was infinitely worse. Yeah. Than anything, you know, the we'll just say the average American Christian, yeah, is never going to experience what he experienced, even remotely. Yeah, yeah. So then, to understand that going into it, right? Anybody knows. Yeah, yeah. He knows. That's mm-hmm. right. But it wasn't just our suffering; it was also our temptations. Yeah. I mean, in the language again, points us to reality that Jesus Christ was tempted in every respect. And we see it in the gospels. You know, Matthew 4 is, is the classic example of Jesus being taken into the desert by the spirit of God to be tempted by the devil. And he was tempted there with things that, that we're tempted by every day. Uh, wealth, possessions, comfort, power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he was also in the garden of Gethsemane tempted with the avoidance of suffering. God, I don't want to do this. If there's yeah. another way, let's do it that way. And I think most of our temptations fit into those categories. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the things that you're tempted by, what is it? Well, it's usually wealth, comfort, slash uh, pleasure. It's power, you know, lording your authority or yourself over other people. It's I don't want to suffer, so I'm going to do things this mm-hmm. way instead. Jesus did all that, faced all that, yet the difference is he did it without sin. He, he faced it all <laughs> Perfectly, which let me add, this is a great reminder that there is a massive difference between temptation and sin. Um, I heard somebody say once, yeah, it's about three seconds. I love that. (laughs) I think that's so so true. Uh, But there is a big difference between temptation and sin, right? Mm -hmm. If temptation and sin were the same, that would mean Jesus Christ is a sinner and he came to die for his own sin, not ours. Mm -hmm. But temptation is different than sin. Okay, James 1, we get a clear picture of it. And I love my guy, James, because he uses a fil- fishing illustration. Of course. Yep. And uh, if you think about fishing, it's it's really simple in concept, right? You put a 
piece of bait or a lure on the end of a line, you throw it in the water and you try to entice the fish to bite. Mm -hmm. That is temptation. Yeah. It, it is when Satan puts some kind or his demonic forces put some kind of lure or bait in front of you and he always knows which one to use because mm -hmm. he, he knows what you like. <laughs> he knows what you are tempted by. Yes, he and does. And so he, he's going to dangle that in front of you. That's temptation. Sin is when you take the bait. Sin's when you take the bait. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's the point. Jesus never took the bait. Right. Right. It was, there was dangling in front of him. The bait was put in front of his face. He never took the bait. And so what that means is Jesus Christ can now help those of us who are being tempted. That is Hebrews 2.18. Now, the way that we access this help, it's right there in verse 16, through prayer. We access it through prayer. This, this is the invitation to draw near to him with confidence, mm -hmm. which the word confidence means bold frankness. Uh, it's how my daughters approach me. You know, they're not impressed by dad at all. <laughs> you know, You're not a big deal at no, home? No, I'm not a big deal at home <laughs> at all. And so my daughters will just come and, and very boldly and very frankly, uh, very confidently ask for whatever it is that they want, even when it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, okay? So um, what's crazy, this is how God invites us to come to him. This is how Jesus Christ invites us to come to him, not in a disrespectful manner, mm -hmm. but we're invited to come in with no hesitation, very humble, very honest, and to pour our hearts out to him. And we also have to remember his position. We've been invited to the throne of grace. If we can get this, it'll change everything about the way we pray, okay? Mm -hmm. If we can remember that our God is seated on a throne of grace, not a throne of condemnation, not a throne of disapproval, <laughs> yeah. but a throne of grace, and that he actually delights in giving sinners what they don't deserve, that will change everything about the way that we pray. Yeah. So we've been invited to come to Jesus who's on this throne of grace, and he says when we come to him, number one, we receive mercy, and the word mercy means that we don't get what we deserve. Mm -hmm that he withholds from us what we deserve. So think about this, man. You mess up, you fail, you falter, you blow it, and you come to him boldly in prayer, and he withholds from you what you rightfully deserve Yeah. as a sinner. That's amazing. Yeah. And then in its place, you get grace, which means he gives you what you don't deserve. And he does that to help you in your time of need. And so practically that means if you and I fail to pray, fail to approach him as he's seated on the throne of grace, we're robbing ourselves of help. And we go into sin management mode and we just work hard to do better, yeah. and, which never works out in the end, right? Mm -hmm. um, we might do well for a little while, but then we slip back into that cycle of sin and weakness and temptation and suffering. And, and it's all because we're not doing what Christ invites us to do. So I'll take it all the way back to the question. How do I give it to God? Yeah. Number one, you have to remember that he's for you, mm -hmm. that Jesus Christ became like you, that he identifies with you, that he sympathizes with your weaknesses, that he has faced your temptations and he has done it perfectly. And now he is seated on the throne of heaven, serving not only as king, but as high priest. And he invites you to come to him for anything that you need in any season of life, regardless mm -hmm. of what it is that you're facing, because he wants to give you whatever you need to face it and to overcome it. Mm -hmm. How do I give it to God? By, by trusting all that is true about Jesus. Yeah, He's for you and he's inviting you in and he wants to give you what you need. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a pretty good trade-off. Like you can trust him 
and he's proven that he is trustworthy by all that he's done for you through the incarnation. Hopefully that helps. Well, I think that's good. And, you know, as I was thinking about this question, you know, the, you know, your common theme you're going to get from me. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to keep beating these drums. Um, and kind of along the lines of what you were just sharing was that, you know, the kind of the foundation of that question, how do I give it to God? Yeah. Um, the theme that we're kind of going into as a church is this idea of total surrender. That's right. And that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. It's the only way to do it because what it requires of us, whatever it is, and everybody has an it. Yeah. And a, and a lot of times we put it down and we pick it up and we put it down and we pick it up and we keep doing this over and over yeah. again. Uh, what it requires from us is total and absolute surrender. Yeah. And trusting that God is going to work things out the way God's going to work things out for our good and his glory. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and that we are not in control of any of it anyway. That's right. Control is an illusion. It's an illusion. So then thinking through that lens and everything we said, here's, here's kind of what I came up with. How, yeah. do, I give it up? How yeah. do I give it up? The first thing is the spiritual disciplines. And these are the drums I'm going to yeah. keep beating yeah. over and over and over again. And I know you're listening to this right now and you may be thinking, oh, great. So the answer to the question is read my Bible more, pray more. <laughs> great. Well, yes, that is the answer to the question because the reality is, is it is very hard to trust somebody you don't know very well. Mm, that's good, bro. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, some passages that came to mind. Um, in the, we'll go Old Testament and then New Testament. Yeah. So Deuteronomy six, the yeah. Shema. Yeah. Starting in verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, O God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as, a, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Mm. It communicates this message of, the word consumes us. Yeah. It's, it's everything we're thinking about, we're talking about, teaching our children, talking to people, everything we're doing is talking about the word. Mm-hmm. How, we can't do that if we're not in it. Right. I thought about Ephesians 6, so the armor of God. Yeah. Right? So it's hard to be in a fight. And we're, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Right. right. We're trying to give something up. The yeah. devil doesn't want us, to, our flesh doesn't want to give right, it up. Right. The devil doesn't want us to give it up. Yeah. This is spiritual warfare. So it's hard to fight. The, the world's trying to convince us that we don't need to give it up. Right. Right. So, you know, we're trying to fight this spiritual battle, but yeah. we don't have any armor. Right. Right. So get into the word. Yeah. Memorize scripture, commit it to memory, pray. Um, you know, doing all of these things, leaning into these spiritual disciplines personally, but then also doing it in community because it's also very hard to fight alone. Right, right. You yep. can't do it. Yep. So in community, so like Hebrews ten twenty four, you know, let us let us uh, find ways to stir one another up to love yep. and good works. Yep. Like, how am I doing that in my life and community? And then the last piece I would say, uh, and then we can jump to the next question was a word of encouragement. Mm-hmm. This is not a switch that you can flip. Right. 
and then all of a sudden it's not a problem anymore. Right, right. Yeah, this this takes time yeah. and experience. And with each time, and you know, we talked, you had, uh, I can't remember where you said it. We were talking uh, about like the, you know, if you want to measure your spiritual growth, yep, yep. it's the the amount of time between yep. knowing what you're supposed to do and actually doing it. Right. And as that gap gets smaller, that's your spiritual you're growth. Maturing, right. right. Uh, it's the same thing here. Yeah. As you let something go and you kind of, you know, travel that path and you know, you see what God did and you know, you kind of get on the other side of that, that experience mm-hmm. grows your faith. Yeah. So the next time you need to give it up it gets easier and it gets easier and it gets easier. It's kind of like working out. Now, James, you probably don't know this. I know nothing about that. You you can't just go to the gym once or twice and then be ripped, right? (laughs) It doesn't really work that way. Our spiritual life, our spiritual maturity, like all these things, this idea of giving things up, we can't we can't just do it one time. Yeah. And then think everything's going to be easy, right? Right. This is the process of sanctification. This is yeah. how Christ is uh, growing and molding us yeah, um, yeah. into who He's calling us to be. Now, that's a good word, man. And I, I think it's important what you said about spiritual disciplines and and even their purpose, like the reason that we do these things. You know, we don't read the Bible and pray and get involved in community just to do those, right? Or, or oh, this is what good Christians do. Mm-hmm. No, these are the means by which we open our lives up to the spirit of God so that he can sanctify us. Yes. So that he can grow us. Like we don't even do these things to grow ourselves. <laughs> like you can't grow you. Come right. on, man. Right. No, God in grace has given us these tools and these resources so that we can know him, open our lives to him, and so that the Holy Spirit can come in and make us more like Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point, as we grow and mature, it, it becomes easier. I don't want to say easy, but easier easier mm-hmm. to pry our hands off of those things that we're holding on to. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess the other thought I would just say is this, like, man, you can keep whatever that it is. Like you can hold on to it and not give it to God, mm-hmm. um, but you're robbing yourself yeah. of, of true joy, of true freedom. I've said it a lot. I'm probably going to keep saying it for a while. True joy is found in surrender. Mm-hmm. And so hold on to it yeah. and you're going to miss out on what God wants to give you. But if you will release it in light of who he is and what he's done for you, man, that's where joy is found. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I, I almost, I wonder like, you know, your God's kind of up on his throne and you know, I envision him drinking a cup of coffee because why wouldn't God drink coffee, right? Uh, God. And him, God him just kind of watching me, yeah, right. And you know, I'm I'm scurrying and I'm stressed out and I'm frustrated and I'm trying to make all these things happen. And I, you know, a lot of times it's because it's not happening the way I think it should happen. Yeah. Uh, and he's just kind of sitting up there sipping on his coffee with his legs crossed, just like, okay, let me know when you're tired. <laughs> let me know when you're yeah. tired. Yeah. And then we'll get this going yeah. the way it needs yeah. to go. Yeah. Um, and then I get tired and then eventually we kind of get where we need to go. Right. But it makes me wonder how much quicker some things would move yeah. if I would just give it up. Surrender and it. Surrender it. Yep. That's good. All right. Final question. Yeah. Easy one. And this is going to be an easy one. Super easy. But I do think it's going to be one that you know, you're going to like because you can nerd out over yeah, it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I like it. All right, so this question came in. It says, you mentioned 613 laws God gave Israel, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. If we worship the same God of Israel, 
why do only the moral laws apply to us today? Great question. And here is the very simple answer I would give. Because we aren't ethnic Israel. All right. Well, that wraps it yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll expound upon that. Yeah. But, but that really is the simple question or, or the simple answer to the question. We aren't ethnic Israel. Right. Okay, God gave the law to a very specific group of people mm-hmm. at a very specific time in history for a very specific purpose, okay? And and we're not those people, unless you're Jewish and you're listening to this. You're not those people, right? right. And and furthermore, we're on this side of Christ. We'll talk about all that in just a moment. But but much of what God gave them was for them. Right. So, for example, uh, I'll give you some homework. Go read Leviticus 19, mm-hmm. all right? And you'll find God talking about not sowing two seeds in the same field, not wearing garments made of two different types of material. Yeah. Uh, he tells the men not to cut the hair on the sides of their head. Okay, praise God, we're not like under that anymore, right? <laughs> I mean, there's certain dietary restrictions that you find God giving his people as part of the Old Testament law, and it was meant for them. Right. So I was trying to think about how to illustrate this, and this is probably a weak illustration, but Mike, we both have kids, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I have certain rules for my kids in my house that you may not have for your kids. Right. And it doesn't mean that that the rules don't matter or they're irrelevant, but they're for my kids. Mm-hmm. And I give them to my kids for a reason, but that doesn't mean your kids have to follow them because your kids aren't my kids, right? Right. Again, we are not part of ethnic Israel, so all the law does not apply to us. And I'll just, this is where I'll start to nerd out, okay? Some history <laughs> to really unpack what I'm, I'm trying to say, all right? So we start back at creation. Mm-hmm. God speaks the heavens and the earth into being, forms the universe, and fills it with order and beauty and meaning in life. And then he makes Adam and Eve, and he puts them in charge of it all, uh, rule, reign, be fruitful, multiply. And these people were to fill the entire earth with the glory of God that that was their purpose. Now, they obviously blew it up, got it wrong, rebelled against God. Uh, man, their their sin resulted in the kingdom of sin and death coming into existence. The world is jacked up and broken because of what they've done. And in Genesis 3.15, right after they sin, we find this great promise. Yeah. That through the woman will come an offspring who will crush the enemy's head. Mm-hmm. Okay? Hey, look, you're going to bruise his heel He's going to crush your head. And we know from the New Testament, Galatians 3.16, that it was a single offspring, and the single offspring was none other than Jesus Christ. Yeah. So this is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Mm-hmm. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God is promising to send someone into the world to reverse the curse of sin, to fix what Adam and Eve had broken. And so fast forward to Genesis 12, and you see God singling out a man. His name was Abram would later become Abraham, and he made him this amazing promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And that nation would become the nation of Israel. And he also promised to give this nation land to live in, the land of promise. And so throughout the book of Genesis, you see God building this nation. From the single man, Abraham, came all of these descendants And the book of Genesis ends with them in the nation of Egypt. And they spent over 400 years there in slavery until God finally raises up a deliverer and he sends some plagues and he gets his people out of there. And then he starts leading them to the promised land. Right. And as he's taking them to the land, he gives them the law. 
And the law was meant to shape how this nation lived in the land God was giving them. Right. Okay. So moral law, I, I spoke to that. Um, contained in the Ten Commandments. It never changes. It applies to all people in all places for all times. And it really is encapsulated in the greatest commandments that Jesus speaks about. Love God, love people. Mm-hmm. Right? The Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, the first four are aimed at our vertical relationship with him. Right. And the last six are aimed at our horizontal relationships with people. And I think we could all agree, probably shouldn't murder, <laughs> probably shouldn't steal, Probably not a good idea to lie. Yeah, you know, I, home probably works best when I honor mom and dad. And right. And at the end of the day, because we're we've been created by God for Him and we belong to Him, it's probably best to keep Him at the center of life, not to put anything else in His place. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. That stuff never changes. But we also have civil laws, and so this is how God told His people, the nation of Israel. This is how I want you to function in society. Mm-hmm. And so as you're living in this land and you're interacting with each other, this is what I want you to do. And he gave them very specific laws to follow so that his nation would be set apart from all the other nations on the earth. Mm-hmm. Okay, in Exodus 19, he actually said, if you follow the law, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Yeah. And you think about what priests do. What do they do? Well, they make God known and they help people know God and the way that Israel was to accomplish that in the world was by living differently than all the other nations around them. Civil law, Mm -hmm. this is what it looks like to be different in the world at this point in history. And then thirdly, ceremonial laws. And so this was God saying to them, this is how I want you to worship me in the land that I'm giving you. And this is so important because as sinful people, we don't get to worship God on our own terms. Right. Like we worship God on his terms. We can't come to him any way we want because he's holy and we're not. We have to approach God in the way that he tells us to approach him. Mm -hmm. And so this was the purpose of the ceremonial laws. I'm going to lay out a way for you to interact with me, for you to worship me. And in addition to the law, God also put in place the sacrificial system, which was also a grace because he knew these heathen people, they're going to break the law. Yeah, They're not going to get all 613 right all the time. (laughs) And so God... And instituted the system which allowed lawbreakers to kill an animal in their place for the atonement of their sins. Yeah. Okay, you don't have to suffer and die for breaking the law. Something can die for you. And again, that was an act of grace on God's part. And then he also put the priesthood in place. Mm-hmm. And the priests were there to mediate the relationship between God and his people and the people in God. In other words, they were meant and, and their purpose was to ensure that the people worshiped him rightly, mm-hmm. because if they failed to worship him rightly, that was going to go really, really bad for them, okay? Yeah. Now, all that to say, this entire system, the law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, it was all meant ultimately to point forward to Jesus. Every single bit of it mm-hmm. foreshadowed Jesus. Yeah, I talked about it this weekend, but the problem with the law is it can't save. Mm-hmm. Um, I said it earlier, like if you could follow perfectly and you were innocent, yeah, it could save you, but we're not and we can't, so it can't. Uh, The law, according to what Paul says in Galatians 3, it's meant to reveal Mm -hmm. sin. Uh, It serves as a mirror of sorts. So when we look into the law of God, just go read it. Go read the 613 laws. It shows you what a jacked up sinner you are. Right. That you are a sinner in need of a savior. And the more you try to follow the law, the more you become aware of that. Because the harder you try to follow it, the more you realize, I can't follow it. 
Mm-hmm. Like this is impossible to accomplish in my own power and in my own strength. And so the law itself was meant to leave Israel longing for the Savior God promised to send. And so going back to the question, uh, why aren't we supposed to follow the whole law? Because we're not ethnic Israel. Mm-hmm. And so there's certain parts that don't apply to us. But then more importantly, more importantly, Christ fulfilled certain aspects of the law for us. And so those aspects of the law are no longer necessary. Yeah. Okay, let me just speak to the ceremonial law, for example. There is a reason we don't follow all the laws about sacrifices, Mike. And there's quite a bit of them in there. And praise God for right? it. Right? If you, if you go read them, there's a lot. Uh, Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, which you should read them. Such incredible chapters in your Bible. Jesus Christ made one single sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. Mm-hmm. One sacrifice to cover all sin, which is why we don't show up at cross point on the weekends with our birds and our lambs and, you know, killing stuff and blood everywhere. And yeah. because Christ poured out his blood to atone for our sins, mm-hmm. the laws no longer apply. They've been fulfilled by him and through him and in him. Right. There's a reason we don't need a high priest any longer. It is great. Like there's a reason we don't have little confession booths set up all around Cross Point City Church. Like if you sin and fail, you don't need to come tell me about it. You just need to go to Jesus because he's your high priest. Yeah. You, you go and and you talk to God through him and he advocates on your behalf. And so, you know, all the laws about right worship and the priesthood, like we don't follow those anymore because they've been fulfilled in Christ and by mm. Christ. There's a reason we don't go to the temple and worship, right? Yeah. And so all the laws that were meant in place to guide our worship of God, like there's a reason we don't follow those. Uh, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that we are the temple of God. This Mm -hmm. is fascinating that we as the corporate body of Christ, not just individuals, but collectively as the corporate body of Christ, we are the dwelling place of God. And so that means we can worship God anytime, anywhere, in any setting that when we come together, and this is what makes the gathering so important, when we come together, God shows up because we're his temple, yeah. and this is possible all because of Jesus. The moral law, I'll end with this, I would argue is for us. Yeah. Why? Well, because ultimately we see it being taught by Jesus in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you want to see it, go read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew yeah. chapters 5 through 7. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he expounds upon the moral law of God. And he actually takes it to new levels. He raises the bar. He raises the bar tremendously. You know, I I mentioned the whole murder and adultery thing over the weekend. Mm -hmm. I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, if you have anger in your heart toward your brother, you're a murderer. Um, Hey, I've never committed adultery. Well, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so Jesus raises the bar, which is ultimately not meant to, to result in us trying harder to do better, mm-hmm. but it's meant to drive us to him, yeah. to remind us of our need for grace and to depend upon the Holy Spirit of God to be the people he's called us to be in the world. The Sermon on the Mount is really about Jesus Christ showing us how to live as kingdom citizens in this broken world right now, yeah. right now. And so again, I would argue still for us. That aspect of the law is still for us. Yeah. But we are not ethnic Israel, so it doesn't all apply 
And Christ has taken a great burden off our backs yeah. by fulfilling much of it for us, all well, of it for us. Well, and that's why this is an important question because people will use this yeah. a lot to say, well, you're just picking and choosing right. what you want out of scriptures. And you're, you're condemning this thing over here, the Bible calls sin, but you're ignoring all of this stuff over here because yeah. you, know, you just don't want to do that. Right. So it's important we understand why we're not following these laws. And I, I love how, like, speaking about the moral law, J.D. Greer um, referred to it as a reflection of God's character. Yeah. Like this is how we understand how God views right and wrong. That's exactly right. Good and evil. Yep. So, you know, in the Old Testament, they're following these laws to stay, you know, to be right with God, like right. to try to achieve rightness with the Father. Um, whereas the New Testament believer, we're following these moral laws because we're already right with God. Yeah. We're just trying to bear his image in the world. And this is one of the clearest pictures of that we have yeah, yeah. of how he views right and wrong. That's so right. why would we not follow it? Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me say one other thing that's just on my mind before we close, okay? And I think this is super important. Um, and it's a reason why you need to understand how your Bible is put together. Yeah. And you need to understand the history of the nation of Israel and what applies and what doesn't apply. You know, there's a, a very dangerous theology in existence known as prosperity theology, mm-hmm. um, also known as the prosperity gospel. And here's what's so interesting. A lot of guys who preach that garbage mm-hmm. want to go to the Old Testament and rip things out of context to promote that message. Yeah. I talked about Deuteronomy 28, right? Backbone right. of the Old Testament. This is God attaching certain blessings and curses to the law. Mm -hmm. And he told his people, the nation of Israel, if you obey my law, I will bless you in the land that I'm giving you. Yeah. Those were promises of blessing for them. Mm -hmm. Okay. What we cannot do is rip what God said to them. Yeah. This ethnic people group, this nation at this point in time in a very specific land serving a very specific purpose, what we can't do is take that and turn it into a theology that doesn't apply to us. So it doesn't apply to a new boat or... Dude, it's great, right? <laughs> and so again, I would just yeah. say this, this, is, this is how, um, or this is why, excuse me, we need to understand mm-hmm. what applies, what doesn't apply. We need to understand the history of scripture how it all fits together. Because if you don't, you can take stuff like that and and make something very dangerous out of it. Yeah. And and that needs to be rejected. Yeah. Greatly rejected. Well, and I would say too, you know, just off of that line, you know, some people may be hearing that and being like, well, how do I do that? Yeah. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Um, so we'll do a little shameless plug for the Institute real quick. There you go. You know, we, we provide theological training. Yep. Um, that is available. Classes are getting ready to start. You know, you can sign up, you can take theology courses, Old Testament, New Testament. We have some core classes that are a little bit shorter. Yep. Um, you know, that's one of the best and easiest ways to plug in to start getting that training. I agree. Um, but in any case, shameless plug complete. I love that. <laughs> uh, we'll go ahead and wrap that up right here. Um, next week, we're going to continue on in the book of John. Again, we're going to be in this for a while, but I hope you're enjoying this. I know that we are. Yep. Um, and please keep the questions coming. We had some great questions come in. Uh, for this week. Looking forward to hearing uh, the questions that you have from this next sermon. Um, You can submit those questions through the social media posts that go out on Instagram story and in our Facebook communities. Uh, But until next week, know that we're here for you and we love you.